Welcome everyone to FF Plus, your spoiler-free outlet for movie reviews, entertainment recommendations, and discussion. I'm your host, Aaron White, and excited to bring you a couple of new films today, as well as some information about an upcoming home video release. If you're enjoying the show, I always encourage you to follow me on social media. You can do that at Feelin' Film on Twitter, at Aaron L. White on Letterboxd, that's A-A-R-O-N-E-L. W-H-I-T-E. We also would love for you to give the show a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It helps make us a little bit more appealing in the eyes of those seeking something new to listen to. But mostly, we're just glad that you're here and that you're listening. Here on FF Plus, the format is pretty straightforward. I always cover what I like, what I didn't like, and then I give you a recommendation about whether I think the film is worth your time and money. That's it. It's simple, it's short, and spoiler-free. The first film we're going to talk about today is called The Atom Project, coming to us from Netflix. It stars Ryan Reynolds, Mark Ruffalo, Jennifer Garner, Walker Scobell, Catherine Keener, and Zoe Saldana. It is directed by Sean Levy, and it is written by Jonathan Tropper, T.S. Nowlin, Jennifer Flackett, and Mark Levin. What's it about? A time-traveling pilot teams up with his younger self and his late father to come to terms with his past while saving the future. Now, that's a very concise and witty tagline. I like it a lot. It doesn't really tell you pretty much anything about the film other than the fact that we're going to have a man from the future come to the past and interact with himself and his family. The movie starts with this text on the screen that says, time travel exists. You just don't know it yet. I like that. Kind of sets the stage for the world that we're in that we kind of are approaching this from a modern day standpoint. In fact, the future, which we start in, and there's a very exciting spaceships chase sequence that happens before we kind of go back into the past with Ryan Reynolds' character. Ultimately, he lands in modern day 2022. That's not where the whole movie is set. There's some more time jumping, but that is the connecting point for us because it allows us to kind of visualize this future as our future and everything is current as of right now. So I like it that we're approaching time travel films with that in mind. It's always kind of weird to think back on the history of time travel films if you're in sci-fi nut or you enjoy this genre. And when you look at movies like Blade Runner or things like that where the future has already come and gone in terms of the year that they projected in their movies. <laughs> Certain flying cars, etc., would happen, but here we are. Still haven't got there yet. Anyway, what's this movie about? Well, as it mentioned, there is old Adam who is going back in time. He meets up with young Adam and he's trying to essentially save the future because there is something going wrong with the way that time travel has been used. Of course, there's like a nefarious corporation and a sort of a villainous type of character that's Catherine Keener and that person wants to use this time travel for certain purposes that maybe are not in the best interest of humanity that are very selfish in nature and so we have this conflict what i really like about this is that it feels like a throwback to the old fun science fiction and time travel films of the 80s think about back to the future which gets name dropped in this even Terminator gets name-dropped in this, The Last Starfighter, and Flight of the Navigator. Those are a couple 
as well that I would really say match the vibe of this movie. It is a family film through and through. That's going to be a negative for some people, I think, because the movie is a little bit rushed in its plotting and it has quite a bit of melodrama. It doesn't really let the characters breathe. It doesn't do a whole lot of depth in character creation and the way that the relationships kind of happen. Everything is very on the nose. It's not subtle. The emotions that are displayed are very clear. And I think that that's with a purpose, and I appreciate it because it's easy for kids to keep up. You can watch this with younger children, and they're not going to get confused about what's happening or who is who and how they feel about each other because we're lacking some of the nuance that maybe you might expect in a hardcore sci-fi time travel type of movie. So it's definitely light on the world building. I would have maybe personally liked a little more a robustness of what is going on. What is time travel being used for in a bad way? Like, what are the effects of that? What's the long term? There's everything is really shortcutted. And so, you know, I'm not going to come out of this saying, oh, it's a favorite movie of mine that I'm going to revisit over and over because it lacks that depth in it. But it is a fantastic film that I think everybody should at least watch once with their kids. And it's a movie that I think if I still had younger kids, this could be something that would be on repeat over and over and over, much like those ones I mentioned from the 80s were from me. Walker Scobell is the young Adam, and I believe this is his feature film debut. He's awesome in this movie. The chemistry between he and Ryan Reynolds is perfect. You will absolutely believe that this kid is a younger version of Ryan Reynolds. He matches the sarcastic, comedic tone pitch perfectly. And they get to do some really fun stuff, but they also have some really strong emotional moments. In fact, there's great emotional and tender stuff between the Adams, between Adam and his mom, both Adams and their and their mom, between older Adam and his wife Laura, and between both Adams and also Mark Ruffalo. There's also some really fun sci-fi action and tech. Another reason why your kids are going to really enjoy this. I don't want to even give it away, but there's spaceship battles, there's cool weapons, and the visuals look really awesome. So Sean Levy, in case you have forgotten, paired with Ryan Reynolds on last year's film Free Guy. That was a big hit. So I think this is very much in that vein. It's even less vulgar. I like that. The jokes are pretty tame for a Ryan Reynolds movie. And it really leans, again, into being completely family-friendly. And it wraps up with a extremely affecting and moving kind of final moment of the scene that is definitely going to touch dads everywhere, specifically. One other maybe kind of negative to this would just be that, listen, Ryan Reynolds is Ryan Reynolds at this point. And we say this every time we talk about a new Ryan Reynolds movie, but it's just him playing himself. It's Deadpool without the nasty humor. The delivery of his comedy feels exactly the same, even if the script makes the words different. And so if you are not a fan of Ryan Reynolds' comedy, there's nothing here that you're 
going to see that's different. Like he is who he is much like Dwayne, the rock Johnson. There are certain actors that are just going to give you the same thing over and over and over. Mark Wahlberg is in that group as well. You're not going to get range. (laughs) And so if you're looking for that, just don't expect it or, you know, skip this, I guess. But for me, I loved it. This is going to be streaming on Netflix on March 11th. And I think it's a big two thumbs up, high recommend for me. Put this on your radar to watch with the family this weekend. I think you're going to be really satisfied. And I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people come out of this saying it's one of their favorite films of the year, just from a pure enjoyment standpoint. The next film we're going to talk about is Turning Red from Walt Disney Pictures and Pixar, starring the voices of Rosalie Ching, Sandra Oh, Ava Morse, Maitreyi Ramakrishnan, Hyene Park, Orion Lee, Wai Ching Ho, and James Hong. It's directed by Domi Shi and written by Julia Cho and Domi Shi. What's it about? Mei Li is a 13-year-old girl who is torn between being her mother's obedient daughter and the chaos of her youth. As if that were not enough, when she gets too excited, she turns into a big red panda. Prime Pixar material here. (laughs) It is taking something that is very normal for us to go through, which is in this case, a young teenage girl going through adolescence and puberty. And it is sort of mixing that with a fantastical premise to create this fun anime leaning, as far as the stylings go, animated picture that, again, like the Adam Project, families are going to really love and be able to watch together. This one is set in Toronto in around 2002 and 2003, and I really like that because Mei Li is a Chinese-Canadian, which gives her a kind of very unique perspective on the world and experience. That time period was huge for boy bands, and so like anyone at that age during that time period, May and her friends are obsessed with this boy band in their animated world called Four Town. It, it totally brought me back to my Backstreet Boys and NSYNC days of obsession. I used to have posters. I listened to these songs left and right. I danced to them. And so the idea that May is obsessed with something that her mom would not approve of makes perfect sense, right? Listen, this is very culturally specific. The family in question is one that runs a local temple. They pay respect to their ancestors. Their ancestors were obsessed with animals, particularly the red panda. Shocker. And so there's a lot of Asian culture in this. Along with that is this expectation of May to be a certain type of child, getting very good grades being a good girl who works at the temple and kind of carries on the family traditions, etc. So when she's kind of lashing out, in a sense, rebelling, wanting to go to this concert with her friends, she's being torn and pulled in these multiple directions between her essential Canadian side and her Chinese side. And I really like that. I think the character herself is well-drawn. She's very intelligent. But she also is a lot of fun. She gets along with her friends. There's not a lot of conflict, for the most part, between the kids. There is one child that comes into play that there's some conflict with. 
a little bit of a slight bullying storyline, but I love the way that it is handled and it ultimately wraps up in this movie in a positive way. The way in which May kind of transforms into this giant red panda, though, it's all a metaphor. And I've never watched an animated movie that so effortlessly and so completely was open about puberty. That red panda and turning red in general can also be a metaphor for a young girl's first experience with menstruation. That is just a fact. And what this movie is getting at, there is a specific dialogue that happens that is talking about, hey, are you getting your period? That is something that I think is really cool because it's addressing this kind of unspoken topic that every young girl goes through. And I really enjoyed the way that the Red Panda works as a metaphor for the periods of change as she goes through adolescence. It's said in the movie, any strong emotion will release the panda. And the more you release it, the more difficult this ritual to get rid of it, quote unquote, will be. There's a darkness to the panda and you only have one chance to get rid of it or you'll be the panda forever. It's all a metaphor about going through this change and it's drawn through this lens of a Chinese culture from Domi Shi's own experiences. Now, there's been some talk on film Twitter and other social media about a film critic who wrote something in his review about how this movie he believed was only made for Domi Shi and her friends and family, and he didn't relate to it, and he didn't get it, and so he didn't like it. He didn't think it was, quote, made for everybody. And I usually don't get into this kind of stuff, but I want to push back on that a little bit because I actually think that that is a strength of this film. And in general, one of the best things that movies can do for us is provide a perspective and let us see things through someone else's point of view that we never would otherwise. That's what I like about this movie and the way that it was made. This is also the first ever Pixar film to have a full female production team from the top down. And I think that that shines and shows in what we see on screen with this character and the way the film plays out. It is very true and feels natural and believable and honest to a point. And I kind of get annoyed that someone would suggest that because a movie isn't for them, that it's, quote, not good or poorly made because it's not focused on being for everyone like all other Pixar movies are, that's just ridiculous. And this is amazing. And imagine if you were the person that this was made and you were the represented one on screen finally. And to hear that, it's just extreme privilege of being someone who is shown on screen frequently, in my opinion. And I think we need to reevaluate if we're looking at movies and thinking about them in those ways. So for me, it's a strength that the movie has such a great depiction of Chinese culture. Now, I'm not saying it's completely accurate. I'm assuming it is based on the people involved in making this movie, but I don't know. But I am taking that at face value because it's their experiences and learning from it as we go. It's also just a lot of fun. The movie's got some really exciting action sequences. It's incredibly funny, 
and incredibly lighthearted and it's really quickly paced and it, it's just it's a very good family movie much like the Adam project I actually think these will make for a great pairing this coming weekend you know you can have two awesome movie nights or one movie night you know go through a couple buckets of popcorn with your kids if there's anything I don't really care for I think that it's just a little bit light on the quote Pixar punch it's there like it does have some emotional moments but Don Shanahan my colleague kind of coined this phrase that I seem to have co-opted and used myself all the time and it's the idea that Pixar movies typically come at you with this huge emotional revelation or moment and scene that leaves you walloped and it affects you for the rest of that day and you can't stop thinking about it. I, I didn't get that here. I got that moment, but it was more fleeting than it usually is. I still think it's kind of beautiful in context. It just, I didn't have the deeper connection to all of these characters that maybe would have allowed it to linger in me in the way that some other Pixar films have. I also don't really care for the animation style that much. The panda animation looks great. It's incredibly furry and you can almost feel the fluffiness of it on the screen, but the characters, I actually like anime, but the way, animated way in which these characters are drawn, it's just not my favorite. They look really plasticky to me, almost like they're action figures kind of, in a way, it feels much less expressive than some other forms of animation. So it's not bad by any means. It just wasn't a highlight. Overall, definitely good movie. Definitely enjoyable. Definitely one you should see. And especially if you have young girls, I think that they are going to see themselves in this if they're in that 10 to 14-year-old-ish range. This is what they're going through in life, and they're going to really relate. And that's something that is super cool because we just don't get a lot of movies like that. It also doesn't really dive into sex. And I think that that's cool because we deal with adolescence and puberty without needing to put our character in a situation where sexual activity is the kind of thing that they are using as a reference point for growing up. This goes through everything else around that. And I, for one, appreciated that a huge amount. This will be streaming on Disney Plus beginning on March 11th. And yes, highly recommend it. Kind of wish it was coming to theaters. Wish both of these were coming to theaters. I say that all the time, but what are you going to do? Kind of cool also that they'll both be streaming at home this Friday. So you can do as I said, grab the family, get together, pop them both on, watch them both in about three, four-ish hours and have a really, really good time. Now, before I let you go, I also want to quickly talk about West Side Story 2021 and its upcoming release on 4K Ultra HD Blu-ray and DVD on March 15th, as well as its release on digital, which happened March the 2nd. Now, we covered this in episode 302, so I'm not going to talk to you about the film specifically. You can go back and hear Patrick and I's deep dive conversation about a movie that we loved, one of our favorites from 2021. Steven Spielberg's remake of the Best Picture winning musical. But what I am going to talk to you about is special features because you know how much I love me, some good special features and a great commentary and a great making of documentary. Well, there's no commentary here. And that's maybe a little bit of a bummer at first. But once you go through the special features, I found myself not really concerned 
with that nearly as much. The way that these are structured is there's a group of little featurettes, and it's called the Stories of West Side Story. Each one is pretty much anywhere from like, I'd say, around 3 to 11 minutes in length. And what they do is they walk you through the entire making of the film from conception through each and every scene, chronological order, and then all the way down to the finale and ultimately a little bit of a tribute piece. There is a ton of interviews from cast, Spielberg himself. There's some conversation with Stephen Sondheim, which really got my tear ducts flowing. And there's an amazing amount of behind-the-scenes footage that explains and shows how scenes were crafted and filmed. This is amazing, amazing stuff. When you play it all together, which you can do, you can choose to hit play all, and it goes through almost like a 90-minute making-of documentary, or you can watch each individual featurette at your own time and speed if you can't do them all at the same time. I love that format, but it really does play like a documentary, and it's one of the best ones I've ever seen because there is so much shown about the actual filmmaking process. You can feel the passion and love for the story that everyone in the production has, and what ultimately great making of documentaries do for me personally is they elevate a film. And they make my appreciation of it go so much higher. And that's what happened here. This is a beautiful film already. But now seeing the amount of love and care that went into making this and seeing it come to life before my very eyes, I love it even more than I did before. I'll go through the list of what the stories are and what they cover real quick for you. So it begins with opening Director Steven Spielberg begins the journey of one of his career goals to direct his own cinematic version of the iconic musical. In doing so means he will embrace enormous challenges. There's prologue. From the iconic finger snaps to the complex choreography, we are introduced to the film's opening scene and explore its setting. We begin to see Spielberg's vision take shape. Sharks and Jets. Meet the actors who play the Sharks and Jets. Go behind the scenes of La Borinquena, the song of the Puerto Rican Revolution which was added into this vision of the story and discover the deeper meaning of Jet Song. This one was really cool. They actually show briefly a dialect coaching session. I don't think I've ever seen that in a making of documentary before, and it was neat to watch that happen and how that actually plays out and how people try to get the right dialect when they're not used to speaking in a certain way. There's Dance at the Gym, Mambo your way through the dance at the gym and Justin Peck's choreography as it leads to the pivotal moment when Tony and Maria meet for the first time. There's the romance. Explore the budding romance of Tony and Maria with the songs Maria and Tonight as Rachel Zegler and Ansel Elgort talk about the casting process and what led them to this career-defining film. They captured the moment in which Stephen gives Rachel the news that she got the part. And oh my goodness, it is so delightful to see. I'm really grateful that we kind of got a peek into that because her joy is just absolutely overflowing. There's America. During a sweltering New York heat wave, the cast and crew take the production to the streets for one of the biggest dance numbers in the film, America, featuring Ariana DeBose, who plays Anita. This one, 
talks a lot about the Latin X casting process in general, and we get to meet a ton of the cast members and learn about their histories and backgrounds in different film and theater, and that was a real, real highlight for me. There's G Officer Krupke, which is my favorite musical number in the film. Spielberg and the Jets make G Officer Krupke their own through a new setting, vocal direction, and choreography while they explore the meaning of Stephen Sondheim's lyric, get to know Iris Minas, and the significance of their role. Cool. During the first week of production, Spielberg and the cast nervously jump into filming on the elaborate and challenging set on the musical number Cool. From Quintet to the Rumble, Spielberg and his team navigate the intertwining scenes of the Quintet and the Rumble. Once there, they take a scene that is traditionally stylishly choreographed and instead bring a more visceral authenticity to the fight between the two gangs. This one has a lot of Mike Faced, which is always a good thing. And a couple of quotes from him really stuck out because not only he, but many people throughout this talk about Steven Spielberg in just such a beautiful, admirable way. Mike said, what I witnessed was just a person chasing his joy. He's the perfect artist because he remains a student, and that was infectious for everyone. Look, if you didn't already love Spielberg, this is going to do it for you. I can't imagine how you don't, but for most of us, he's easily a top five filmmaker of all time, and this will help you even understand why more so, I think. I Feel Pretty, screenwriter Tony Kushner sheds new light on I Feel Pretty, We see how, in Spielberg's film, the beloved song by lyricist Stephen Sondheim is given new vision as it is set and performed within Gimbel's department store. Really enjoyed this one a lot. Seeing and hearing from Stephen Sondheim in a brief interview appearance in both this and the final section of the special features was hard, as I mentioned, but very nice as well. There are great little notes that they give about where the lyrics might have come from in the song. And they tie into how Maria was working at Gimbel's. And they also talk about the production and the set design. And that was uh, really, really cool for me. There's Somewhere, Hollywood legend Rita Marino, who won acclaim for playing Anita in the 1961 film, returns as Valentina, a shopkeeper's widow, as well as an executive producer. She brings extraordinary experience and emotion to the film and sings the song Somewhere. As you can imagine, just a phenomenal little tribute to Rita Marino and all about how her casting for this and the role came to be. Finale, in a moving testament to the talented cast and crew of West Side Story, Spielberg reluctantly wraps one of the best filmmaking experiences of his career. That's case in points is exactly what it is, and it's a beautiful thing. Again, just to see how much everybody loved working on this production and how none of them really wanted it to end. And then there's a couple-minute tribute as the credits roll where the late Stephen Sondheim reflects on his career and experience making West Side Story. And I just, it's hard not to get emotional about one of the greatest lyricists of our time who just passed away, unfortunately, in the fall of 2021. Also in the special features are a list of all of the songs where you can jump directly to a musical number in the musical if you want to do that. I think that is a really neat feature, and I wish that more special features for musicals would do that because sometimes you just want to put on like say city of stars if i was watching la la land and just to click it and boom go straight to that would be really phenomenal the film is in 4k it's got dolby atmos which i absolutely loved it sounded and looked outstanding on my 65 inch oled tv 
and my surround sound system. So I will absolutely plug this as being a phenomenal home release. And I think that it is going to be one that you can enjoy over and over on a big screen TV and just really get a great kind of home experience with this, even if you were unable to see it in a theater, which of course will always be the ideal. But, you know, we want a movie that translates well to being rewatched at home. And this one has. I also want to point out one really, really, really cool feature, and that is that all these special features are available with the digital release. So I personally screened them all via the Movies Anywhere version of this film, and that's not always something that happens. A lot of times special features, most of the time, almost always, the majority of the time, special features are confined to a disc purchase. But now, even if you buy the movie digitally, you get access to them. Big time, big time recommend for West Side Story, digitally or on 4K, either one, when they're both available. Well, that's it for this week on FF+. Plus. Hopefully you have heard about something that you will be interested in. I would love to hear you come tell me what you thought. If you do check out any of these films, you can find us on Repod and our little community there. Come tell us what you thought about the episodes. You can find us in the Film and Film Facebook discussion group and all the socials, etc., etc. I will be back soon. Until then, keep watching and keep feeling filmed.